Uh, Father, God, it's a crazy life, and we're in control of so little of it. And and just with this uh, thing with Justin being reminded of that, that we can't even count tomorrow or the day after and, and know what's going to come. And we would just pray for him and pray for his family, um, that you would give them strength and that you would somehow bring some encouragement uh, into this valley that they're in. And Father, just would lift them up to you now. And we also just pray for uh, needs across the board, God, just that we wouldn't cut ourselves off from what's going on in the world and numb ourselves and and just kind of um, look at only the things that make us happy, but that somehow we would see the mess and the the problems and the difficulties and that we would actually have a heart for it. And as your son came as a doctor to go to those needy people, that we would feel like doctors as well, trying to help out people that are in need, that are hurting, uh, that are going through trials. And, And so, Father, just change us. Make us more like your son and give us a heart for people. Give us a heart for this world. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, it's kind of a different thing. I'm, I'm going to kind of try and just give you uh, through this message just how I'm beginning to see big picture like my life and the life of church and just kind of what that's supposed to be about. And and here's how it kind of developed. We're going into this series called Move and the idea is that uh, there should be momentum and movement and that we're called to something. We're not just called to sit and be. Um, God didn't reach down and make us alive so that we would just be like spiritual couch potatoes. He, he made us alive so that we could do something. And so kind of this series began with this idea of just doing something. And so this week I was reflecting a lot on the idea of movement, which is kind of a fun thing for me. I, I'm only happy when things are moving. And it doesn't matter what it is or who I'm with, even if I'm by myself, there has to be progress um, or I, I'm not happy. And so even thinking about movement kind of made me happy because I'm just really sick like that. Uh, so I was thinking about it and it was kind of an interesting thing. I, I realized that not only does movement make me happy and not only is it kind of a cool thing, but there's certain categories in which movement is a necessity, that movement has to exist uh, for that thing. And so a, a great example would be a bike. You can't ride a bike. You can't like even balance on a bike really unless there's movement. Does that make sense? It, it's, it's required to do that action of riding a bike. You got to have movement. And I thought of other things and I thought of conflict resolution. And in some strange way, we're all going to face that. We're all going to deal with it. We all do deal with it. Uh, we bang into each other, sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally, but there's a lot of friction in life. And to, to heal that and bring that together, it always begins with dialogue. There has to be communication if that's going to be repaired, and that's movement. It's getting the ball rolling. And so even with the car, it's funny, I, I used to um, watch those little toddlers in the car that would get in the driver's seat, and, you know, and they're just yanking on the wheel back and forth, back and forth, and the car is going nowhere. It's not turning at all. And movement is required for that car to turn. Even if you're just going along at a crawl, if you're going at a crawl and you turn the wheel, you can begin to turn that car. And so movement is required for certain things. It's funny, like you go take somebody skiing, and and I used to teach a lot of people how to ski back in, in college, and you get them on the bunny slopes and it's, it's hard almost to teach people how to ski because the whole idea is 
you're using your edges against, you know, with gravity and speed against the mountain, and it turns you and things like that. And you get on the bunny slope, and all people are doing is just standing and trying to keep their balance, and it's not really skiing. It's hard to learn without movement, okay? Um, so if you go skiing with me, um, you might be thrown in over your head right away. Uh, so just warning. Uh, so movement's required, and and so I kind of looked at that, and I was thinking, wow, that's kind of an interesting thing. I never really saw it that way, but movement is a part of life. It's a necessity. And so I started kind of putting that in context with the Bible, and I was saying, is that true in Scripture too? Are there things that have to do with God and, and with our relationship with God that require, it's not just a good thing, but they actually require movement. Is God about movement? And so I kind of started going through, starting in Genesis. I'm like, wow, you know, he gets the story going with the bang. That's pretty crazy. And then, uh, you know, you got David um, flying headlong into things, and and that's like a lot of crazy movement. And I just was looking at the Israelites and like, yeah, for them to do what God was wanting them to do, there had to be movement. And when they stopped moving and started complaining, the wheels were coming off. It was like the car that that couldn't go anywhere. God couldn't steer it because these people were stubborn, and they just brought it to a halt. So then I came to the book of Acts, and that's kind of where we're at this morning in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. And I kind of thought about how God got the church going, this little baby church movement and how he got it going. And here's how he, here's how he did it. And so let's pick the story back up on just the thread with Peter. And so you've got these uh, fishermen. You've got these guys that are following Jesus. And they're going through all these things. And Jesus dies. Three days later, he comes back to life. And in that whole interim period, these guys are thrown for a loop. Now, I went to a dinner last night, uh, and I got Shanghai. I, I thought I was going to a barbecue. And I got put on the hot seat for two and a half hours, um, getting peppered with questions. And that's what happens to you when you're friends with the Parkers. Um, but, you know, I just came out of the blue, and I'm getting peppered with questions about theology for, uh, you know, the whole rest of the evening. And one of the things that came out was this, and it kind of fits, but uh, a lot of people think, you know, 12 stupid fishermen 2,000 years ago, they were idiots, you know, why am I going to follow what they, they were all excited about? So what? They were all excited about Jesus. I'm not going to follow that. That'd be stupid. Those guys had to have been stupid. Uh, and that's kind of the, the view of people that are coming to Christianity. And the, the interesting thing is these 12 guys, if they were just so radically committed to the idea of Jesus dying and coming back to life, uh, I can see something weird happening. Like, well, we really committed to this happening, and here's Jesus. Well, they kind of, well maybe they kind of go together, and, and we run after that. you know. But the interesting thing is, is those 12 guys had no conception whatsoever of Jesus dying and being raised from the dead. It wasn't a category that they had. In all the literature in the Old Testament coming up to the intertestamental period, in all the messianic prophecies that were looking ahead to Christ's coming, the idea of him dying and coming back to life in three days, it was never there at all. It wasn't in the tradition, wasn't in the writings. The idea of Christ coming at the end of the age uh, was an idea. The idea of resurrection at the end of the age was an idea. But this idea of, of dying and then coming right back to life, there was no category for it. And so psychologists that kind of do fun little games with the brain tell us that, that you can't really come up with something completely new, that you, you don't do it. So if, if I said, come up with something completely new, someone would be like, a yellow elephant. And that's not 
new. You took yellow and you took elephant and you just kind of put them together. You know, you didn't really create a whole new category um, from scratch. And so they test people and it's really hard, almost impossible to just come up with something out of thin air that doesn't exist. And these disciples, this idea of Jesus dying and coming back to life was a completely foreign concept to them. I mean, just out of thin air if, if it didn't happen. And so it, it lends credibility to this idea of 12 guys spending the rest of their lives and dying for something that happened because they weren't even expecting it. It happened to them. And so we were talking about it a little bit last night. But so here's these disciples. This is what's going on. And Jesus has kind of brought them into this position where they're going to be the foundation of the church. And Peter's in the middle of this. Now, Peter, when Jesus called him, he says, you're a fisher guy. And I'm going to call you to be a fisher of men. And, and wh- the way that would go is Peter could catch some fish. You know, he's, he's a fisherman. He could catch some fish. And two different times, G- Jesus takes Peter when he's caught no fish. He's got nothing going on, no fish, nothing. And Jesus says, throw it over on the other side of the boat. Cast your net here, cast your net there, wherever it was. And Peter casts the net and doesn't just get a little bit of fish. He gets a haul that he's never had before. A month's worth of fishing, and you know enough to sink the boat, kind of a of a haul. And Jesus did this to him twice, and he's teaching him something here, saying, "When I want to, I can bring that harvest in better than you can, even with all the strength and the experience that you have." And so last night, when I was thinking some more, I was like, "Wow, I never really realized this parallel," but Jesus does it to him again after he leaves. And so if you turn to Acts. This is what Christ says to the disciples right before he he leaves in chapter 1. He says this, verse 5. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. So he's saying, stay right here in Jerusalem where I was killed, where the Romans are, uh, where the, the le- Jewish leaders are that also kind of delivered me up to the Romans. Stay right here. Don't go anywhere. But don't do anything either. Don't start like fishing and getting like a couple of people here, a couple of people there. Just sit and wait for the gift my father promised me. And that gift comes on the day of Pentecost. And what it is, is it's the presence of God in their life. It's God sending the Holy Spirit so that he can be with them. And what's so crazy about that is it couldn't happen until Christ came because God is separate from, from us. And he can't dwell with us because uh, it would like be adding you know, gray paint or black paint to white paint and it just doesn't mix. And so God is completely separate. But when Jesus dies for us and, and makes us pure, it covers the, the sin that we've got in our life and makes atonement for that, all of a sudden, this barrier is gone. Jesus removed the barrier between God and us. And that's what's so funny about his, his name, Emmanuel. You know, we get to Christmas, and we start singing that song, Emmanuel. What does it mean? It means God with us. And so Jesus dies, and now all of a sudden, it's, it's able to come together, and, and Jesus says, wait for that. Wait till that's delivered. And so these guys sit around in a room, praying and praying, scared that they're going to be killed, uh, wondering what's going on. And then all of a sudden, one day, God shows up, and he shows up with a bang, and he pours out his spirit on them, and it's God with them now, and he says, it's go time, let's pull the trigger, throw your nets to that side of the boat. And so they walk outside, and it's not like they've got a little bit of the fish already, some, 
some piles. They've already been kind of getting the movement going. There's nothing going. And they walk outside and they begin to share this message of Jesus. And Peter takes the forefront and he kind of culminates it in chapter 2, verse 36. And he, he says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And he preaches this message. And then we see just a little bit further down that 3,000 become Christians that day. Choose to follow Christ and, and accept this teaching that Peter's given them. And the way they used to number it back then was just kind of the head of the household. They would count the guys. And so most scholars would believe it's pretty safe to say that's 5,000 total people that came and accepted this message on that day. They didn't have microphones, didn't have speakers, didn't have anything else going in 5,000 people in one afternoon. So here's the parallel. Jesus sets Peter up with this whole idea of, look, I know you can do some stuff, but I'm going to take the days when you've got nothing going, and I'm showing you I can top it beyond your wildest expectations. And then he takes him on this day of Pentecost and says, you ain't got nothing going today either, but let me show you what I can do. And he sends him out, and they haul in so many people that it can't even be contained, kind of just like the whole fishing thing. And so God gets this church going with an explosion of movement an explosion of movement. And so maybe the little infant church is a lot like a bike and God didn't want to kind of have it go, you know, little kids when they're starting to ride a bike and they're like wobbling from side to side and falling over. Maybe God is like, no, I don't want them to think they pedaled it and started it going. And I don't want it to wobble. I want it to explode with movement. And so he did, he did it through them. And so I started thinking, yeah, maybe that's the idea. That when God moves, there's actually movement. When God seeks to move, it's not like still wind. There's actually movement. So how would that apply to the church? And so I kind of kept going in my mind. And I've, I've been a part of a church before where the pastor really wanted a lot of momentum. And it was kind of the funniest thing I ever heard in church, except for the one that I can't tell you. Um, but one of the funniest things I've ever heard in church, he was trying to just give people this idea of momentum. And he said, I want to I be like my grandma and go out leaving skid marks. Okay. What was funny is like only half the church got the idea of a car and wheels. And the other, the other half of the church was like, why would he talk about his grandma's skivvies like that? You know, um, I want to go out leaving skid marks. You know, they, they really didn't get it. So it was actually funny as the younger generations especially were like, what, what gives? And so we were hearing it all week. You know, the, the college group and the high school group, the young married group were like, what was he talking about? And he was clueless, and no one told him, so he did it again the next week, and then there was like a little laughter throughout the congregation. Um, and so uh, I think there's a way to talk about it. I think there's people that realize it, that maybe the church should have movement too, that maybe it should. And I think that's a foreign thought to us. I don't think we naturally crave movement. I think we naturally crave control. And so what's fascinating is you look at Acts and you flip over a chapter uh, to chapter 5 in Acts and, and you've got Ananias and Sapphira and, and they're like cheating the church. You know, they're, they're saying they're giving all this money and they're lying about it and they were trying to take all the stuff that was going on and make it about them. Wow, this is really cool. Look at all this movement. Let me get some attention out of it. And God says, no, that's completely the wrong idea here with this movement. It's about me and, and he kills them. 
says, we're not going to have any of that. And you go a chapter further over, and these, these new baby believers are like playing favorites. And so you've got this whole thing where widows that only speak Greek and they don't speak Aramaic are kind of just getting left out of the food that's being given to the widows and, and taking care of them. And so the, the disciples uh, now have to deal with this. And they've got like this 10,000-person megachurch now. And they're like, what do we do? How do we deal with this? It's a mess. It's hard. How do you structure it out? How do you make it perfect? How do you control it? And they did their best and they responded and they appointed some leaders. And then you go over a chapter and Stephen gets stoned and, and then all of a sudden this persecution breaks out. And so they're trying to keep it all together while people are scurrying for their lives. And they're like, how do you do that? And we don't even have email and we don't even have cell phone. You know, how do we keep this thing together? And then all of a sudden, some of the people that spun off are starting churches, and half of the Jerusalem church is saying they're not a real church because they're not Jewish. And so the leaders of this Jerusalem church are having to get together and sort it out and be like, you know, what really makes a church? And they've got this headache, and, and it's out of control. But it's what God planned. And so I, I think it's a really interesting thing that we naturally think that what's best is to pull it in, dial it in, and control it. It's neat, it's tidy, it's pretty, it's mine. And I think we've got a, a wild God that when he decides to move, explodes, and it makes us feel way out of control. And so I remember when I was uh, nine, I, my dad was in the Navy, so I lived all over the world kind of growing up. And, and when we were 10, I moved to Maine and then down to Virginia, but we moved from California up around uh, San Jose area, there's this little town called Milpitas, if you've ever been there. So we were around Milpitas, and my dad bought a, uh, one of those pop-up Jayco trailers, and we were going to start camping as a family. And so I remember nine years old, uh, we're driving somewhere, pulling this Jayco trailer, and you've been on the road for hours, and so you're just kind of tuned out. And then all of a sudden, everything went crazy because the trailer started fishtailing. And I don't know if you've ever had that situation happen, but... You can't explain it, okay? You've got a trailer behind you, and it starts getting wobbly and bouncing from side to side. And since it's tied to your bumper, it starts pulling the car from side to side. So you're going 55 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, and you're in the seat, and you feel the back end of your car getting all sloppy and going from side to side. And you freak out. I mean, this is way too fast, you know, for your car to be getting pulled all over the road. And what happens when it, when it gets really bad is it can, it can flip your car. The trailer flips, and since it's tied to your car, then it flips your car and you start to roll. So it's freaky. And the natural tendency when you start fishtailing is to do what? To slow down. Jam on the brakes. It's, it's natural. It's, we're out of control. We have to regain control. We regain control by what? Slowing down. But it's not what you want to do because if you slow down, With your brakes, the trailer's still going at 60. Now you're slowing your car down. And especially if it's out kind of sideways, it's now pushing while your car is kind of trying to slow and it can set up this whole situation where where you roll. It's the worst thing to do. You don't hit the brakes. So here's the counterintuitive thing you're supposed to do. Okay, I've never done it. I've been told this is what you're supposed to do. I think it'd be hard, right? But you're supposed to step on the gas a little bit. You're supposed to accelerate. And the idea is this. If I've got a string and I put my finger in the middle and I kind of like push that string in the middle, the two ends are going to come together, right? 
forward movement kind of brings these things behind it. And if you've got this trailer that's bouncing all over behind you, if you accelerate and go faster than it, it's going to pull it in behind you and straighten it out. And then when you get going and you're, you're kind of not bouncing around anymore, you can ease off and slow down, go to the side of the road, um, freak out, <laughs> do whatever you're going to do. Uh, but, but that's what you're supposed to do is speed up. You're supposed to speed up. And so here's the, the, the interesting thing that just kind of is, is shaping the way I'm viewing my life and the way I'm viewing the church is as I've thought about movement this week and, and looked at different texts, I'm thinking maybe when things are a little out of control, the idea isn't to slow down, but the idea is to speed up. And so I kind of looked at David, you know, running headlong at Goliath and feeling like maybe he's a little out of control and pushing the envelope and that that's okay. And that when God calls Abraham to go and wander around in a place that he's never lived, he doesn't know uh, what it looks like, he doesn't have Google Earth, you know, nothing, nothing going like that, um, that he must have felt a little out of control. And that that was okay, that was what God planned. And so the picture to me is running down a hill. And I used to hate running down a hill. It was fun until a certain point. You know, and then, then all of a sudden your weight's, you know, catching the gravity, all that stuff. And you start running faster than what you think you could run on your own. And you don't know if you can keep your legs up underneath your body. And all you picture is yourself just tumbling forward, just eating it. And so I kind of picture it that way, that we're running down a hill and we feel a little out of control. And that maybe, just maybe, that's what God wants for us. Maybe that's the idea here. Maybe when we're in control, we don't trust him. Maybe when we're in control, we're not moving fast enough for him to steer us. Maybe when we're in control, God's not even in the equation because there's no faith or there's no desperation on our part reaching out to try and be steadied or to be carried through this. Um, There's no need. And so I look at Paul and his life and how he would go into cities and get beat and whipped and stoned and all sorts of crazy things going on. And the next day he'd be right back in the city. He wouldn't slow down. He'd throw himself headlong at it. And, and I, I kind of think that maybe, just maybe, um, we're supposed to speed up when we fall out of control. That the church is supposed to be a messier thing than what we have sensibilities for. We come into church and we think it should be nice and it should be tidy and it should be perfect. And if it's not, I'll email the pastor on Monday, you know, and, and wait till Tuesday, please. I hate Monday emails, you know, but, and I'll tell you, you know, yeah, we're, it's a messy church. You're right. Uh, yeah, that thing is wrong. You know, sorry. <laughs> I already knew about it. Um, but, but maybe the idea is church is supposed to be a messy enterprise where the widow's aren't getting fed on this end and you got to piece it together and figure it out and raise up leaders. And where some people have the wrong motives and they're screwing some stuff up. Where some people get really legalistic and proud and, and cause division in the middle of church rather than unity and grace isn't winning out. And maybe it's messy enough that uh, it feels like we're getting arrows in the back and we're being persecuted. And we can't just settle down and, and have the time to think and bring it all under control because we're being chased. And maybe that's the way it's supposed to be because maybe there in the middle of that mess or in the, little, in the middle of that desperation, we can just reach out and grab hold of God and say, you got to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
you got to bring this harvest because we might got a little bit of stuff going here and there, but it's nothing compared to what you do. And maybe when we start praying, God, bring this amazing harvest or we're trying to do these amazing things. God, show up. Maybe we need to think bigger and realize that he might show up in such a way that it's all out of control from that point on. We're just hanging on, trying not to eat it, doing our best just to lean on God and walk by faith. And so I think in the middle of that, here's the, here's the great thing about, about this is that God's going to do some neat stuff. At the end of Acts chapter 2, God explodes the church on the scene. No organizational charts, no good solid programs, nothing's dialed, but listen to what happens. It says this about the believers that felt, followed Christ. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe. They were filled with awe. There was something there that would fill them with awe, right? I think it's movement. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. And selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I think when the movement goes beyond what we can take credit for and beyond what we can control, maybe just maybe we let go of it and just get excited. We're, we're swept up. We're carried along. And when it's not about us and we're not taking, taking credit for it or controlling it, then maybe instead of pride, we're filled with the grace that, that says we're just going to love being with people and meeting needs. And it's going to be fun. It's not a headache anymore because, man, I, God's doing something here that we couldn't do on our own. We're just enjoying the ride. And so we're filled with awe and we rejoice and we enjoy what's happening. Maybe when we're a little out of control, the journey becomes more enjoyable. This journey of life, the road that you're on, where God's going to take you the mystery that, that surrounds your future. Maybe just maybe it's a little bit better off and we take the time to meet the needs of people. And so I think somehow in this movement, this ball of, uh, of dust, this, this cloud of dust, that, that there's cool things that go on in the middle that we could have never predicted if we just didn't run headlong down that hill. And so what I'm excited about is just the idea of what if we approach church that way? What if we approached it just running headlong down the hill and, and it doesn't matter if we're in control or out of control, we're trusting God that he's got us and we need him to show up and there's a reason for us to pray and there's a reason for us to encourage each other and lift each other up and try to bring tr- times of refreshing to each other because we're all needy and desperate and we're running this race together and so maybe that's just the way it's supposed to be. And so... I don't know where you're at. I, I kind of feel like that's where I'm, I'm at with Antioch is um, maybe it's supposed to be a movement. Maybe us being overwhelmed at the needs of this world, just even in Bend alone, let, let alone the rest of the nations and the different kinds of issues and, and human rights struggles and stuff like that. Maybe that should overwhelm us uh, and we can't control it. And it is messy. And maybe it'll give us a little bit of humility to just kind of enjoy the ride and say, you know what, we're not perfect. We don't have it figured out. But I think even more important than that, maybe where you're at this morning is 
is a spot where God's calling you to move fast, to run down a hill and feel a little bit out of control, instead of hitting the brake to hit the gas, and to trust movement, and to trust that God will meet you there, and to check your heart, know that your motives are pure, know that, that your reasons for doing things are right, know that you're heading in the direction you think God is leading you, and you get all that squared away, and then maybe you just fly down that hill, and, and it's scary, and you're white as a ghost, and maybe that's where God wants us. Maybe we just need a little more speed, and maybe in that speed, we'll grab hold of God and depend on Him. Let's pray. Father, I would just ask that um, this church and what we're trying to do and where we're trying to go and, and who we're trying to be, that, that we'd be okay being messy, that it'd be okay if we don't have everything dialed in and everything figured out, that we wouldn't trust ourselves, but that we would trust you, that we would know that somehow you can show up and explode things way beyond what we could ever do in our own experience and talent and know-how and energy. And, and so, Father, let us look to that. Let us trust it. Let us hunger for it. I just pray that you would just let this church have momentum that could be scary at times, but that's going to keep us united. It's going to make the journey worth, uh, worth taking. And the, in all of this, we would be able to ascribe to you the, the glory and the worth, and that we would be able to see that it's you who is doing this through us. Father, we do need you. I just pray that you would help us find that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, since it is about people, um, church is about people, God, people matter to God, and so therefore people should matter to us, and that's what church is all wrapped up in. It, it was kind of my idea that this month, there would be a story each week that somebody would get up and either tell their whole story or a piece of their story. Um, and so I've asked Kim just to share her story with us this morning. Um, so uh, I was fortunate enough to be raised in a Christian home. My father um, has been in the ministry for 30 years plus. Um, and... Uh, I was taught uh, about God and about this relationship you should have with God and uh, how he can be your best friend. And in times of trial, you can re uh, rely on him. But I never really took that to heart. I had God over to the side, and he was kind of my Sunday <laughs> bubble over here. And then for the rest of the time, um, or for the big decisions in life, I relied on my own wisdom which, uh, let's be honest, we're not the smartest people. And uh, we do not make the best decisions. And so, but, you know, I thought that I was fine. And I could just totally rely on my own um, wisdom. And so I went through um, a lot of my life, high school and singing and uh, college, um, relying on my own wisdom. And at the age of uh, 21, I got married to someone that I didn't really know that well. And um, about a year into our uh, marriage, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which is um, a mental illness where you have extreme highs, you're the life of the party, um, I mean, funny, and just a great time to be around. And there's extreme lows, which in his case would be days um, in bed without speaking, um, the lights down, uh, shades drawn. And so we became two 
strangers living together in the same house. Um, and after a while, he, um, they put him on medication, which kind of evened him out. And he didn't like it. He um, didn't like always just feeling kind of blah. And he also, there was a pride thing. He really believed that he could um, beat it. Like he was smarter than this disease. Like he could mentally beat it. But um, that wasn't the case. And um, about three and a half years into marriage, one afternoon, there was a knock at the door. And I opened it to find two policemen who told me that they had found my husband's body and that he had taken his own life. And there are times in life where the world really does stop moving. And in that moment, you realize that you have a totally different life than you did the moment before, and that it will never be the same, and things are different. And I became very angry, angry at myself, but mostly angry at God, because I didn't understand, and bitter, and... Um, I pushed people away who legitimately were trying to be someone who, a support system for me. I pushed them away because I didn't want them to see how broken I was and how sad and how I blamed myself and ultimately how lonely I really was. And I lived like that for two years in this like world of hate and anger. And I stopped going to church and I stopped spending any time with God because in my mind he was the one that orchestrated all of the pain that I was going through and um, about two years after that I agreed or probably was more bribed to go to a Bible study with my brother Kip <laughs> um, called Antioch and from that um, through a series of events it became a church plant that I got involved in and um, I don't say this to make the story sound better, although it does, <laughs> but Antioch changed my life. It literally took someone who I was not fond of being. I wasn't happy being the way that I was, with the anger. I didn't like myself that much, and it changed me by bringing people into my life and then ultimately through the teaching and showed me that God is so much more than what I thought he was. And he can be so much more in your life and give you something that you, I can't even really put into words. You, but you don't understand. He can um, just be someone that you can rely on, someone who will be there, especially when you think you, or you know that you've hit rock bottom. And so what I'd say to you today is I know there are many of you out there who are broken and angry and sad. And I understand that because I was there. I've been there. But if you're willing to call on Jesus, if you're willing to give him your life, he is big enough to transform you. He's big enough to change you from the inside out. And he'll give you peace and hope. And literally, he will be your rock in times of trial 